Thanks for joining us on Stand Strong in the Word podcast with author, speaker, and worldview expert, Jason Jimenez. Stand Strong in the Word podcast is devoted to walking listeners through the Bible in a fresh and powerful way. We pray your spirit is nourished as you gain new perspectives and a renewed appreciation for God's Word. Now, here's Jason Jimenez. Well, hello, my friends. So glad to be with you here on Stand Strong in the Word podcast. Thankful that you are tuning in as we dive into the scriptures. That's the whole purpose of why we do this podcast, to teach you more about God's Word and to fall in love with it. You know, as I was doing my devotions this morning, I'm actually ending the Passion Week right now and excited to be bringing that to the podcast probably in the next few months. Today is Podcast 82, and we're going to be talking about Lazarus. But as I was Going through my devotional time and looking at many of the teachings that Jesus gave each and every day, it just really inspired me to say, Lord, what am I doing every day? How am I taking your truth, taking your word and speaking it to the masses, speaking it, you know, you know, taking it to the people that desperately need to hear it, even those who are in opposition to Christianity. And so that's just a prayer that I'm, I'm coming to this podcast today uh, about is you and I together being inspired as we look at God's word, being convicted and taking his truth and speaking it out there. So I would just appreciate if you took this podcast, I don't know what else you're reading, what else you're listening to, but if you take a lot of the stuff that is helping you grow in your faith and you took the time to teach other people to put it out there on social media or to let people know, send out a couple emails, send out a couple texts and say, hey, I'm listening to Stand Strong the Word, you know, do it with me or be encouraged by this message, whatever. But let's do what Jesus, our Savior, did. So that's just an encouraging word that I wanted to share with you. But today, we are going to be going through the entire chapter of John chapter 11, going through all of these verses, I think 54 verses in total. So we have a lot to cover. So what I'm going to do, give you a quick little overview as always, but jump right into read through the text and then offer some commentary in it. Because when you see these division points, uh, you see mainly it's centered around, if you know, if you know this passage, it's centered around Lazarus, who was a deep personal friend of Jesus, and this is the resurrection, or as some people technically put it, the restoration of Lazarus from the dead. Now, to bring up to speed, if you go back to John chapter 10, verses 40 through 42, Jesus withdrew to Berea, and you remember he taught his disciples and many of the, the masses of the people from Luke chapter 13, verse 31, all the way to chapter 17, verse 10. So we just completed that phase of Jesus's teachings of those parables in Perea. And now we enter into this short period of time in this journey, this tour, if you will, in, in Judea that Jesus is having. Now, sometime later at this period of time, he goes into Judea because he just received news that Lazarus had died. And so here John records the restoration, the story of God going, Jesus himself going to the tomb of Lazarus and calling him forth from the dead. Now, this is the seventh miracle in the biography of John, or excuse me, in the biography of Jesus that John records. So let's jump right into John chapter 11, verses 1 through 16, and see how Jesus receives the news about the death of Lazarus. Verse 1 says, Now a certain man was ill, meaning he was incapacitated, he was disabled, he was weak. 
His name is Lazarus of Bethany. Now, a note here, just real quickly, because this is important, especially when you go into the Passion Week of Jesus. Bethany was on the east side of the Mount of Olivet, so it was about two miles east of Jerusalem. So here, Lazarus of Bethany is there, and he's dying. And this is the village, John writes, of Mary and her sister, Martha. So we know, according to Scripture, if you go back to Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42, Jesus is very close to this family. Not just one. He wasn't just close to the girls or to Lazarus. He was close to all three of them. Now, prior to the illness of Lazarus, remember, Jesus had just spent time, as I mentioned, Luke 10, with Mary and Martha in their home. John writes here in verse 2, It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Now, the two sisters that I mentioned you know, before in Luke chapter 10 are here, Mary and Martha, obviously. But what's interesting here is that John gives an incident that took place at Simon the leper's house in John 12, 1 through 10. Now, we haven't gotten there yet. So in the chronological order, that has not occurred yet. But John puts it here because he's, carrying on these these main reoccurring characters in his in his you know uh, account of the biography of Jesus so he just puts that there in verse 2 and then verse 3 says so the sister sent to him saying lord he whom you love this it's the greek word phileo the one you have deep affection for is ill jesus responds to this by saying the illness will not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified, meaning attributed high status through this account. Now, a couple things here. It would have taken the messenger, if you think about it, a day to arrive with the news because Jesus is in Berea and he's on the other Bethany in Berea, not the Bethany where they're at, just two miles east of Jerusalem. So it would take a, a day's journey for this messenger that the sisters sent to find Jesus. Now, it's interesting that they knew where he was. So I believe that there was correspondence that he was still having Jesus, that is, with this family. And you go back to John 1, 28 and John 10, 40 to see the location. Now, at this time, when Jesus gets this message, Lazarus would have already died because of that day's journey. Now, this phrase, it is for the glory of God, Jesus foretells, this is what's amazing, that Lazarus will rise from the dead. Now, remember, oftentimes when Jesus would make certain statements, right, people would respond to thinking that it's absurd. But in a matter of time, they would then witness once again and feel like fools, but they would witness once again the magnificent power of God. Remember when Jesus said that we didn't believe him and boom, he does it. So you think about John 9, we're going to be seeing this because it's going to be reintroduced, reintroduced again. Nobody had healed a blind person. Jesus does. Now here in John 11, no one has ever resurrected someone from the dead, restored someone from the dead. Jesus will do it here. Then, of course, it would come to his death and he will rise from the dead. So this is building up, right, if you will, the faith and the anticipation of the people. Now, verse 5 says, now Jesus loved, meaning agape. He had unconditional love. So remember, the message comes to him, says the one you have deep affectionate for is ill, but John responds in his commentary after the fact and says, Jesus, he had a great love for this man. For Jesus not only loved Lazarus, but he also loved Martha and his sister, we're told. And the verse six says, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now notice Jesus didn't immediately go because the time in which he received the news, he knew that Lazarus was already dead. And not only that, but everything that Jesus 
did was under the guidance of the Father, right? John 7, 8. So this resurrection that will come, this restoration from the dead that will come, Jesus wanted to do it precisely at the point in time which he did it to cause the disciples to have a greater faith. John eleven fifteen. we're going to see that. So now here in verse 7, it says, Then after this, Jesus said to his disciples, Let us go to Judea again. So there are no records to what Jesus was doing in Perea. We don't know that. Remember, we just saw all the parables that he gave, and then he goes to Perea. We don't know other details beyond that. But after two days, he announces to his disciples and says, Hey, let's go see Mary and Martha. Now, verse 8 says, The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going to go there again? So the disciples respond to Jesus saying, why? Because remember back in John 10, verse 33 through 39, the Jews were going to stone him for what? For blasphemy. And they spoke up because Judea was a very dangerous place for their rabbi, for Jesus. Yet rather than heal Lazarus from a distance though, Jesus is saying, I'm going to boldly head back to Bethany because I'm going to do something extraordinary. So verse nine, Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now, what Jesus is doing here, it's kind of strange if you think about it, after they just responded to his disciples and saying, why do you want to go there when there's danger? And he talks about 12 hours in the day and talking about stumbling and light and darkness. What he's doing is he's emphasizing his power over the situation. You see, the disciples, they were only seeing the physical threats, whereas what Jesus was revealing to them, the spiritual aspects that are far more powerful. So he's saying is, yes, there's darkness. There's darkness in the world. There are threats. But this world is not going to be defeated by darkness because out of it's going to come light. Now, when you look at the gospel of John and John 1, 4 through 7, John 3, 19, John 8, 12, John 9, 5, and here in John 11. So John repeatedly makes sure in his biography of Jesus, mentioning Jesus being the light of the world. Now, I like this paraphrase from Alfred. He's in the words of Jesus. It says, I have a fixed time during which to work appointed me by my father. During that time, I feel no danger. I walk in his light, even as the traveler in the light of this world by day. Now, another commentary writes this, both the Jews and the Romans divided the hours of daylight into 12. These hours were therefore not all 60 minutes long, but varied in length according to the time of the year. The metaphors of light and darkness and the ideas of walking and stumbling were intended to contrast the unerring progress of Jesus with the fumbling efforts of the Jews to stop it. Jesus's point, they're not a threat. If I'm not concerned, you shouldn't be concerned. Now here in verse 11, after saying these things, he said to them, our friend, meaning the one I have affection or personal regard for, Lazarus, has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. So although Jesus knew that Lazarus had died, notice how he says he's asleep because what he's saying is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to restore him back to life. He knew that that was going to happen. So Jesus is in essence is just saying Lazarus right now currently is resting. So in verse 12, the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover, meaning he will, he will come back to well-being. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep as a commentary note, obviously given by John here in verse 13. So the disciples, when they heard Jesus saying that, they got the report from the messenger. Two days later, says, let's go to Judea. 
They're like, what about the threats that are there? He says, don't worry, let's go. Lazarus is asleep. He's not doing well. So the disciples are thinking, okay, well, we have time. Let's go. Let's, let's obey him. They're not thinking that the report is too severe. So they're not grasping the magnitude of the situation. All the while, Jesus knows what's going on. But his disciples, they don't get it. Verse 14, then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So this restoration of Lazarus was going to be the greatest miracle that the disciples would witness to date. This would be an event that would increase their faith in Jesus as the Messiah. When you go back to Luke 17, verse five, that's amazing. Now, Thomas speaks up here in verse 16, who's a twin. He's rarely ever mentioned, right? And he says in response to Jesus, to the followers, to the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. They think, what, what, what's Thomas getting at here? What's he trying to say? Well, I think a couple things. One is I do think that Thomas is trying to demonstrate a level of boldness. Thomas wants to show that he's committed to his savior. He's trying to show the other disciples. Based memory, go back to Luke 14, 25 through 35. Jesus was talking about what a servant is. And he's trying to represent that. But at the same time, I do think that Thomas, again, remember, he's an evidentialist. He needs to see the proof, right, uh, before he kind of goes. We see that later in John 20 at the postmortem of Jesus, he wasn't there. And so he didn't believe the reports of the disciples. He needed to see it for himself. But guess what? When he saw it, he believed. So I think he's showing also a lack of faith in Jesus's decision making. So he's not fully on board, but hey, let's do it. And maybe when we go there, it's going to be a complete train wreck because they're going to be waiting for us and we're all going to die. Now, verses 17 through 37, Jesus now goes into Bethany, and this is when he sees Mary and Martha. Verse 17, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb. Now, tomb is a stone sepulcher, and, and it says here that he had been there for four days. So now let's put this in perspective. Remember, Lazarus had died the day Jesus received the news, and he was buried, Right? So when Jesus waited for two days to take this journey to Bethany from Berea, that's three and then a day's journey. Now, what's also important to point out in this, in the context in the first century Jew, and when John is writing this, is that in that culture, people were very superstitious about souls lingering around the tomb for three days. So perhaps Jesus is waiting for the fourth day. So when he takes that journey for a day to get there on the fourth day when he's already been in the tomb, he does it to say to the people, when I raise him from the dead, it's not because his soul is still around the tomb. So this would give people no reason to claim that Lazarus was simply resuscitated. So that's kind of an interesting thought. Verse 18 says, now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews, these are Jewish leaders, had come to Martha and Mary to console, meaning to cheer them up, to comfort them concerning their brother. So obviously it was very customary for Jews to come and mourn, right, with the bereaved family during the seven days of mourning. Now the first three days after the death of a loved one was weeping, and then the final four days were a lamenting, a deeper mourning. You see this in Genesis 27 verse 41. Now, remember, mourning was considered a very pious act. So now here in verse 20, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she goes to meet him. She gets up and goes to meet him, but Mary remained seated in the house. 
This is an interesting verse that John puts here. Remember, Luke gives the account in Luke 10 about them, but John gives this account here that Luke doesn't mention. And this verse is interesting because it conveys how both sisters doubt with their brother's death. Notice how Martha gets up. She likes to keep busy. We're told that in Luke 10. Remember, she's the one that's cooking, making all the stuff, getting stressed out. She goes to meet Jesus while Mary remains in a mourning posture at home. This is a true uh, description of what we see in Luke 10 here now in John 11. Now, Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that Whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Once again, I love this because Martha is expressing a bit of a frustration over this whole thing, as you can imagine, over the fact that, you know, Jesus did not come when they had called him. But nonetheless, she still exemplifies a faith in the power of Jesus' ability to heal. Verse 23, Jesus responds to Martha saying, your brother will rise. Martha says to Jesus, I know. In Greek, it's, I have certainty, I have full knowledge that he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. So notice Jesus is saying one thing. Martha is registering it entirely different. Remember, Martha wasn't hoping for her brother to be resuscitated. She knew that he was dead. She was anticipating what she, her response is she's anticipating the day her brother will rise in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus had been mentioning this in John 5, 29 and Luke 14, 14. Now, remember the Jews, they strongly believed in the resurrection to come, Ezekiel 37, 1 through 28, Isaiah 53, 10 through 12, and Daniel 12, 1 through 3. But Jesus says to her in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes, it's the Greek word, is, whoever believes in me personally, you have a personal trust into Christ and become united. And that's what's going to take place, obviously, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, that we become united with him. And he's saying that right now, if you believe in, into me, you become united, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never, it's a double negative. He's saying, if you believe in me, you shall never, never die. And he looks to Martha and he says, do you believe? Meaning, am I worthy for you to trust in this? In verse 27, Martha says to him, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. This is the fifth I am statement in the biography of Jesus according to John. John 6, 35, John 8, 12, John 10, 7, and 9, and now here in John 11, verse 25. Now, what Jesus is doing here for Martha is he's taking her strong belief in the resurrection as a Jewish woman, but he's affirming his power to not only restore physical life, but also offer eternal life. Remember, you go back to Matthew 16. And Jesus is looking at his disciples and saying, who do you say that I am? Peter pipes up and says, you are the son of the living God. And upon hearing this, Jesus responds to Peter and says, I will build my church on you, meaning on that profession of faith. You look here. Notice that Martha is confessing three truths about Jesus. One, that he is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. Two, he is God in the flesh. And three, he is king. You go back in the biography of Jesus according to John, John 1, 4, and him was life and the life was the light of men. John 5, 21, for as a father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. Verse 28, 
When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. This is interesting because Martha goes to Mary privately. A couple of reasons why. Number one, to protect Jesus, perhaps because she knew that the Jews were seeking to kill him. And obviously, it was a big public spectacle. I do believe that this family were very prominent. And so that's why a lot of the Jewish leaders were there mourning with them. Perhaps Martha goes to Mary privately because some of the family members were not allowed to go in public during mourning. And at that time, she had obviously not gone out. She was respecting that. And another simple explanation is just that Martha wanted Mary to have some uninterrupted time with Jesus. And that's why she kind of went to him privately. But now we're told in verse 31, when the Jews who were with Mary in the house, consoling her, saw her rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. So as I mentioned before, the first week, remember, was a period of mourning. So if Mary was, was able to leave her home, she would do so to go to the tomb and there continue her mourning process. Now, verse 32 says, Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Again, very interesting. When Martha goes out to meet Jesus, she's a bit frustrated. She doesn't fall at his feet. Mary does. They're both saying the same thing, but notice how they say it, their actions. This was an obvious ongoing conversation that the sisters, I guarantee, were having when their brother died. Man, if only Jesus was here. Man, you know, we sent that, where's that messenger? The messenger comes back, told Jesus while their brother's already dead and they're just waiting as they're mourning. One commentator writes, Mary was found three times in the gospel record and each time she's at the feet of Jesus. Luke 10, 39, John eleven thirty two 32 here, and later in John 12, verse three. She sat at his feet and she listened to his word. She fell at his feet and poured out her sorrow, and she came to his feet to give him praise and worship. Mary's only recorded words in the Gospels are here in John eleven thirty two, and they echo what Martha had already said in John eleven twenty one. End quote. Verse thirty three: When Jesus saw her weeping, meaning wailing, and the Jews had come with her also weeping, Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. In Greek, that word "troubled" means. He had this intense grief and anger over death. And he says, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept quietly. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? So if you see in this passage, this, this deep emotion that Jesus is experiencing here over death, Remember, this is his humanity here. And one of his loved ones, Lazarus, is dead. And not only that, but he's looking at his family and he's seeing their sorrow. Even though he knows hope's going to come, he's going to restore this. It's just the process of going through it, just like him suffering on the cross. The agony that he went through, even though he knew that he would rise from the dead. So it's just amazing to see this type of love that Jesus has. This phrase now, kept this man from dying, See, the Jews, they believed in the healing that took place. Remember of the blind man in John chapter 9, Jesus said these things were done to bring glory to God. Well, they continued to bring glory to God. And many people believed their result. But now they're raising some questions about what about the dead now? 
I mean, are there some things that this man, Jesus, cannot do? So it's quite apparent in the text that no one was expecting a miracle at this stage. So verse 38, when Jesus, who was deeply moved, he was groaning, there was deep indignation again, came to the tomb, this carved out tomb in the limestone, which is very common in those days. And John says it was a cave. It was a stone and a stone laid against it. Jesus comes to the stone. He says, take away the stone. Now, Martha, the sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, by this time, there will be an odor for he has been dead four days. In verse 40, Jesus responds to her and says, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? Remember, Jesus is reminding Martha here of what he told her just not too long ago. In verse four, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it. Jesus is testing Martha's faith beyond her belief that he could have healed her brother before he died. He wants to see if she believes. He wants to see if Martha truly believes that he can raise her brother from the dead. That's the test. And this is going to take great faith. Matter of fact, in this stage, in this time of mourning, and now with this challenge of what Jesus is telling them to do, he's not only testing their faith, but this is probably the greatest test that they've ever experienced up to this point. Verse 41, so they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard, meaning you've listened, you've accepted, you've responded to me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. So this incident encapsulates the mission of why Jesus came. Here we have Jesus standing before the tomb of a dead friend. Here we have Jesus praying to the Father here we have Jesus showing the people of his glory and his power, and then he commands life back into Lazarus. This is the greatest miracle that any of those people have ever seen. This miracle caused many of the Jews to believe that Jesus is, yes, Jesus is indeed the Son of God. And then in verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now it's important to point out how they kind of wrapped, you know, the dead bodies and how they buried them. Now it was customary to take the dead person and to wrap them up quickly. There was no refrigeration at that time, obviously. So there was a lot of concern with decaying corpses and defilement and things like that. And so what they would do is they would wrap the cadaver in long strips of linen, and they would tightly bind the dead body into a cocoon-like shape, right? That was the process. And they'd place them in this internment. It was not a coffin, but they would put them in this tomb-like grave. And so that's a situation uh, that Lazarus is in. And so by Jesus calling him out, you know, he's literally ripping himself out of this cocoon-like state. And so he's telling people to go to him and to start taking off his wrappings. And you can imagine the response of people when they see that Lazarus, who was dead for four days, is now alive. And so we're told in verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So once again, a miracle of Jesus creates two factions, if you will. Those who believe and those who refuse to believe. 
So in verse 47, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and they said, what are we to do? This man performs many signs. Literally, they're saying he performs many wonders and miracles. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and they'll take away both our place and our nation. This is a very important passage for many reasons. Primarily, I believe, because of the descriptive explanations as to why the religious leaders ultimately refused to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. Did you catch it? What did they say? They didn't want to lose their positions of power. They just admitted privately that Jesus is performing miracles and only God can perform miracles. And yet... They're not willing to authenticate the Messiahship of Jesus. So in verse 49, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, he reigned from AD 18 to 36. He said to them, you know, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this, John writes, of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and for the nation only but also to gather into one the children of God who has scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So Caiaphas rightly observes, right, that Jesus's life would eventually end for his people. But he is also referring back to people like Judas Maccabeus, remember, who's willing to lead his people and to die for them, for freedom. But what Caiaphas fails to realize is the prophecy that's connected to Jesus, his future death and what it would bring, the atoning sacrifice that it would bring, according to Isaiah 53. And once again, they just make plans to put Jesus to death. Over and over again, this is what they do. John 5, 18, 7, 19, John 8, 44, 59, John 10, 39, John 11, 8. Over and over again, they just look for ways to kill Jesus. In verse 54, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. So at this point in Jesus' ministry, he needed to lay low now. People were still talking about the blind man that was healed. Now, Lazarus, a recognizable person, a dear friend of Jesus, is raised from the dead. So he needed to lay low because they were plotting once again. And Caiaphas now is standing among them. The Sanhedrin wanted to arrest him and they wanted to kill him. And so Jesus goes 14 miles north of Jerusalem to Ephraim to get away. One commentary writes, the Synoptic Gospels tell this last journey up through Samaria into Galilee to join the great caravan that crossed over into Perea and came down to the eastern side of the Jordan opposite Jericho and then marched up the mountain road to Bethany at Bethphage just beside Jerusalem. This story is found in Luke 17, verse 11 to 19, verse 28, Mark 10, 1 through 52, and Matthew 9, 1 through 20, verse 34. So John simply assumes the synoptic narrative and gives the picture of things in and around Jerusalem just before the Passover in John eleven fifty six and 57, end quote. So that just kind of explains at this period of time where Jesus is entering and where he's going. So in the next podcast to come, we will be definitely evaluating and examining and looking into this period of time of Jesus to, to better understand what we have recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so as I close out, I just want to say, my friends, just have that faith, have that faith like Martha, that no matter what you're going through, no matter the struggles, no matter the situation, 
put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. If you're listening out there and you're a skeptic and you're questioning whether or not Jesus Christ did, you know, perhaps, you know, you think, okay, well, I know he, you know, I hear that he died, he lived and that sort of thing and said a lot of good things and he was a great teacher, but did he really rise from the dead? I encourage you to pick up two of my books. The first one is called The Bible's Answers to 100 of Life's Biggest Questions. I wrote that with my mentor, Dr. Norman Geisler. That's available all out there on, you know, uh, you know, Amazon and Baker Books and ChristianBook.com, etc. And the other one, and I explore the resurrection in greater detail. And it's a book I wrote with a friend of mine, Alex McFarland. It's called Stand Strong in Your Faith. And we devote an entire chapter where we look at the evidence and we deal with a lot of objections to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I pray that you guys would take those resources and that they'll be very helpful for you. So my friends, I just want to thank you for listening to this podcast. And I just pray as we looked at this encountership, as we see the power of Jesus Christ calling the dead to life, that you and I who know Christ is our Lord and Savior, that we have newness of life, that we would take that faith that has transformed our lives through Christ, and then we go out there and we share the message of Jesus' love to the world. Thank you for tuning in. I love you guys. And until next time, keep standing strong. For more information on Jason Jimenez and Stand Strong Ministries, visit us at standstrongministries.org. Thank you for listening, and keep standing strong in the Word of God.